Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. Our daily newsletter has no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. It's our readers who support Arab Digest, and we intend to keep it that way. To find out how you can support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, head to ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. You heard that right, two months for free. In this world of information overload in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. With one article a day and a weekly podcast, we provide unique coverage of the Middle East and North Africa, featuring the very best experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. My guest today is Tobias Bork, a senior research fellow at London's Rusi Think Tank. Tobias specializes in Middle East politics and the foreign defense and security policies of countries in the region. His book, Seeking Stability Amidst Disorder, has just been published by Hearst. Tobias, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. Your book, which is an excellent read, lucid and accessible, so I thank you for that, it considers the foreign policy approaches of three Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Qatar. And uh, if you'll forgive me, Tobias, for boiling it down to a simple statement, this is a study about three states with different versions of how to cope with the same reality, which is their security. Is that a fair one-sentence sum up? I think so, yeah. I think it's it's about three different versions of how to create security for themselves in what is a very insecure region. Yes, indeed it is. All right, let me begin then by asking you, why these three states? Well, I, I thought I wanted to look at how non-Western states perceive the Middle East and what they understand as stability in the region. Because I think so much of our discourse, certainly in, in you know, Western policymaking circles, uh, it is really defined by outside perspectives on the region. So I wanted to understand how countries in the region and countries that are increasingly assertive, I would say, in trying to shape the region that they're in, how they see it. And there I thought that these three, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar, are the three most active uh, and most ambitious of the Arab states. And they certainly were, I think, for that decade that I looked at from 2010 to 2020. Mm, yeah, it is an interesting trio, isn't it, in so many ways, because you've got Saudi Arabia, which is by far the largest in terms of population, in terms of GDP, in terms of geographic size. You've got the Emiratis, very, very ambitious. You've got Qatar, which is a tiny state with a tiny indigenous population. But there they all are, kind of striving and, and to a certain extent uh, competing on this stage. Now, the book was written before 7th of October, and I want to get to how the Hamas attack and the Israeli responses impacted on, on those security concerns for those three countries. But first of all, let's go country by country, and we'll start with Saudi Arabia, as I said, the largest, the most important. What are the security issues driving Saudi foreign policy? Well, I think from Saudi Arabia's perspective, I mean, often it is boiled down to, you know, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia's security priorities are Iran, Iran and Iran. And whilst that obviously is, is far too simplified, there, there is some truth to it. I think, you know, Saudi Arabia is the region's de facto leader. 
it feels that responsibility very heavily, I think. And it feels that the region it is in is in an, in a, yeah, in, a, in an almost unprecedented level of instability. And that most of that instability, or a lot of it certainly, uh, comes from what Iran is doing, has been doing in the region. The way that Iran has, from Saudi Arabia's perspective, hollowed out a bunch of Arab states. Uh, the way Iran is taking advantage of the United States no longer being the sort of all-dominant force in the region. So yeah, I think from Saudi Arabia's perspective, there's the sense that the region around it is unstable and is the, the future of the region is uncertain. That is the problem. I think there's slightly less of the sort of very physical security concerns. Of course, they had to deal with the Houthis and the Houthis being able to to conduct attacks across the border. But I think from Saudi Arabia's perspective, really, one of the big unsettling things is the region around it collapsing, essentially. And in that, it sees Iran as a big driver. You could argue, though, that they are partially to blame for that instability. You, you mentioned the Houthis and, and the Yemen situation. I wonder, how much do you think Saudi foreign policy is shaped by the personality of its de facto ruler, which, of course, is Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Oh, I think, you know, very clearly it is shaped by him. However, you know, Saudi Arabia is different from from, from the other Arab states and certainly different from, from the UAE and Qatar in that it is just a really, it's a big country with a long, long history and, you know, a, a, a really global role as a big oil producer, sure, but also as, the, of course, the, the host of the... Um, custodian of the holy sites. And so I think there's a big of big responsibility on the shoulders of any Saudi ruler. And I think, therefore, there's also a significant amount of continuity from previous rulers of Saudi Arabia to Mohammed bin Salman. Nevertheless, I think what he has brought is a, a, a new um, direction and certainly a new energy. I think that's probably the most, most obvious thing. Um, he's clearly someone who... Uh, is enormously ambitious, who is in a hurry to transform his kingdom, to make his kingdom future-proof, to, you know, have this kingdom that he will rule probably for 50 years or so, still be there in 50 years. And I think, you know, that energy, I think, defines Saudi foreign policy and certainly has since he took over. Mm. Yeah, and I'm thinking too. I mean, you you, you mentioned he's an impatient man, a, a man in a hurry. I look at the Yemen conflict. He went in there thinking, right, I can get this done and dusted in what a couple of weeks, and what a mistake that was. Well, I think you know, I do think that Saudi Arabia today uh, considers the way that they tackled the Yemen problem in 2015 probably uh, to have been a mistake. But I think also it's it's. To, I get the impression that Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi system around him that he has, you know, transformed and uh, and and rebuilt basically the policymaking uh, apparatus has learned. And I think it has been, you know, if you look at Saudi foreign policy in his first few years in power, i.e. 2015 through to perhaps 2020, that period was very tumultuous, the Yemen intervention, the uh, Qatar blockade, the you know that story with Hariri, uh, and so on. But I think there's it's also very clear that that 
that Saudi Arabia has changed and that he has changed Saudi foreign policy. Hmm. Uh, That's interesting. So sorry to interrupt, but just for our listeners, uh, remind us again of the Hariri incident. Well, I mean, that, that was a period where Hariri, then prime minister of of, of Lebanon, came to Saudi Arabia uh, and was sort of d- mysteriously declared his resignation uh, that he then later rescinded uh, and all seemed to be under pressure from Saudi Arabia in order to put pressure on, on Iran and on Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. So it it was a sort of, it, it felt very, that episode in particular felt very uh, impulsive uh, and sort of let's let's try to deal with this issue of Iranian influence over over Lebanon very quickly and and that just didn't work and I think Saudi Arabia has learned from that I think Mohammed bin Salman has learned from that period in general and I think what we've seen from Saudi Saudi foreign policy since 2020 is a different direction it's a much more considered arguably more strategic approach one that is all about trying to reduce tensions across the region trying to find more pragmatic ways of engaging with uh, countries across the region, whether it's immediate neighbours like Qatar, but also, you know, the, the the big foe, if you will, Iran. Yeah, okay, that's interesting, that that the, the sense that he is, in effect, maturing, and, and part of that maturing process from this unruly young prince to a more thoughtful approach is measured in his foreign policy uh, initiatives. The murder of Jamal Hashoji, the journalist and critic which the CIA, among others, believe was carried out at his behest, can be seen as more of a domestic issue, I suppose, than a foreign policy matter. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Tobias Bork, a senior research fellow at RUSI in London. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day, and the weekly podcasts from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and look out for the offer of a free two-month trial to our reader-supported daily newsletter. Let's now move on to the United Arab Emirates. You mentioned the uh, the Qatar blockade, which the Emiratis played a very significant role in launching. But but let me ask you, what are their cons- security concerns, and where did they diverge from uh, the Saudis? Well, so in in some ways they're quite similar in that uh, you know the UAE is also a country that feels like the greatest threat to its success as a nation is uh, an unstable region um, is and of course at the beginning of the 2010s there was a deep concern about you know islamism and and uh sort of political islam emerging across the region and that that really stood in in opposition to what the uae's own domestic development model is um but later on as that that threat from islamism from political islam sort of diminished i think that continued concern about instability in the region from the perspective of the UAE being something that damages, that threatens the UAE's ambitions, which are to be this sort of 
You know, the UAE is often described as little Sparta, right? That's the sort of nickname that is given to it. But I think it's actually not quite accurate because the UAE is not just a, you know, it's not, not this little country that wants to fight wars everywhere. I think it's actually more like, you know, an old Venice sort of thing. You know, it, it wants to be this, this, this dynamic trader uh, that is small but has a, a global footprint by having ports everywhere and um and being this 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 hub this connector between east and west and so on so i think but you know all of that is threatened by instability in the immediate neighborhood yeah and again I, you could argue that part of that instability was their, of their own making we we look at the just briefly the the uh qatar blockade what damage well, I mean, did that do well, so I think, you know, yes, we can argue that um, some of the foreign policy measures uh, taken by the UAE, by Saudi Arabia or by Qatar, for that matter, um, were in a way destabilizing in the region, too. But I think what I was trying to do in the book, certainly, and in my analysis, was to try to understand how, from their perspective, their actions were meant to stabilize. Because I think stability is quite a subjective thing. One person's stability from the other person's perspective looks like instability. Uh, and so I think what, what, what the Emiratis did with, you know, their dispute with Qatar was ultimately about the sense that from their perspective, what Qatar was doing in the region was destabilizing. Uh, and guess what? From the opposite side, from Qatar's perspective, what the Emiratis were doing was destabilizing. And the thing is, of course, that you can't really argue with either position in the sense that from their perspective, they were convinced that that was the case. Um, I think that that is, in a way, what makes instability in the Middle East so complex is that from, from different perspectives, it looks very different. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking, too, because Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince, and well, now president of the UAE, really has a thing about the Muslim Brotherhood, doesn't he? Um, the Saudis do as well. But the extent to which the Emiratis are, were concerned about political Islam, whereas the um, Saudi's perhaps a little more concerned about Iran. Do you think there's a much divergence then between these two, the Emiratis and the Saudis and their foreign policy approaches? Well, I mean, you know, during the 2010s, there was a period where they were just very, very aligned, uh, both in their concern about, you know, political Islam around the region, uh, taking advantage of the Arab uprisings, but then also and Iran's activities and sort of sense that the US was withdrawing. So yeah, I think there was there's quite a lot of alignment. But uh, ultimately, I think that alignment was quite unusual. Um, and certainly, if you look at the history of the relations between those two countries, it was very unusual, because the relationship has always been slightly uneasy, uh, which makes sense, you know, Saudi Arabia is this, is the, the, just so much bigger and this big heavyweight in the region. Uh, and the UAE is much, much smaller. Uh, and dealing with a big uh, you know, really large, powerful country right next door is not easy. So um, out of that come different perspectives and different perspectives on what is going on in the region. And so I think we have, over the last few years, seen a bit more divergence when it comes to things like what they really care about and within the context of the conflict in Yemen, for example, the UAE 
being able, wanting to move much faster in terms of engaging with Israel and so on. And But that's normal that those two approaches diverge because they're very different countries. And then I think also what's, of course, really important to note is that the OE has really pioneered this this development model of, you know, being a, uh, a hyperactive uh, hub for the world, turning Dubai into this, this global city, essentially. And what we now see from Saudi Arabia is, is essentially trying to do something quite similar. And naturally, I think that that creates tension. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's very much the case. And we're seeing that playing out in, in various theaters, including tourism. And, uh, and of course, uh, the business sector with the Saudis insisting that if you want to do business with the Saudi government, you have to remove your regional headquarters to Riyadh. But look, let's go finally to Qatar, which is a, a tiny country with big foreign policy aspirations and, and achievements, it has to be said. What are the drivers for the Qataris and how much of their foreign policy has been shaped by anxieties over the intentions of the Saudis and the Emiratis towards them? Well, I think in, in some ways... The uh, the Qatari start at a very similar point as the Emiratis do, and for that matter, as you know, the other smaller Gulf states all do, which is having to navigate uh, the reality of having uh, a really, really big, powerful neighbor on one side, Saudi Arabia, and a very big, powerful neighbor on the other side, Iran, and these two neighbors not getting on with one another, and so that is the reality. Uh, that uh, the rulers of Doha or Abu Dhabi uh, all have to to navigate. Um, what the whether where the positions diverge is in how they do that. And I think the Qataris have certainly under the the previous Emir adopted an approach of trying to be different, trying to create this sort of very unique position. You know, being being possibly the most politically stable country in the region, arguably maybe even in the world because of uh, the tiny population, as you say, and the immense wealth that comes from its uh, enormous gas resources. And and that then paired with a huge ambition, but the sense that we can only be secure if we are known to the world, if we are useful to the world and to the world's most powerful countries. And so, you know, that is the approach that the Qataris have taken. uh, And it has on on many occasions brought them into into tensions with their immediate neighbors, including the UAE and and Saudi Arabia, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, let us now, Tobias, turn to the Gaza war. And each of these countries has had different responses. Uh, The Emiratis pretty much keeping their powder dry and sticking to the neutrality corner, if I can put it that way. The Saudis are still wanting that normalization with Israel to happen, but hoping to drive a hard bargain, still a NATO-style defense deal, support for their nuclear program, investment in Vision 2030, and last and probably least, uh, the Palestinian cause. And the Qataris are much more supportive of Palestine. We've seen the initiatives they've taken in regard to negotiations over hostages. Uh, So different approaches. But in terms of security, all three must be deeply worried about a wider regional conflict being ignited. Absolutely. I think, look, for, for all three countries, I think it's very clear that, you know, the period from the 7th of October to today, and unfortunately, probably for another uh, few weeks, if not months, has been an unmitigated disaster for Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar. All of them 
have for the last three, four, five years worked really hard to shift away from this period of intense competition, of intense regional instability of the 2010s to something different, to try to create an environment in which they can focus on what is most important to all of them, which is their domestic their domestic development projects, right? You mentioned Vision 2030 as the one that Saudi Arabia is pursuing, but ultimately the Qataris, the Emiratis too, um, their priority is economic development at home, uh, for which they do need, I think all agree, uh, a more stable region in which, you know, we're not competing the whole time uh, and, and are in conflict at all times. And of course, there's a war that, as you say, has enormous potential to to widen, to drag in more, or to, to, to expand to other countries, to just create the sense that the Middle East is descending into yet another spiral of instability. All of that is bad for all three. And that's why I think, you know, and, and I think that they're also taking the lesson that uh, this approach of ending tensions, reducing tensions, de-escalating tensions, but not resolving conflicts, doesn't really work, that you can't just put conflicts into boxes and manage them forever. Eventually, they will blow up in your face. And so I think, actually, and I, I still slightly disagree with you in, in your question, I do think that for the Saudis, actually, uh, the Palestinian issue is a, is a, is a much more important one. Um, now, of course, it stands next to its own domestic national interests. But I think the Saudis are keenly aware that the kind of stability they want in the region is only really possible when this volatility that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, has uh, is somehow tamed. And there is now, I think, clearly a sense that taming it means having to come towards a, as they all say, you know, an irreversible path towards a Palestinian state. Mm, that's interesting because at the same time, you know, on a daily basis, Hundreds of people are still being killed and injured by these Israeli attacks. And I look at the situation, where is the Arab League? Where is the very strong statement about this, this really a genocide that's going on in Palestine? And I, I sometimes wonder, Tobias, if, if the price of stability will be the, uh, the destruction of the Palestinians' uh, rights and their desire for an independent state. And, and, and perhaps some of these leaders may have said, that's the price we're willing to pay. Pay if it gives us the stability we're looking for. And once again, the Palestinians get you know thrown under the under the bus. By yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm I'm not so sure. I think, look, I don't think there's anyone in the Gulf in in Saudi Arabia, the UAE certainly, but also not necessarily in Qatar, that would be very sad for Hamas to be you know defeated slash removed from the equation. However, that would be possible. Um, but I also think that the, the sense that the Palestinian issue is a permanent driver of instability, perhaps no longer, I think all of them had come to the conclusion that maybe it is no longer the most important driver of instability in the region. There are other problems too, Iran, uh, you know, the changing priorities of the United States and so on. But that the Palestinian issue is as as long as it isn't resolved, will forever drive instability, I think was recognised by all three. And after 7th of October, even more so. So I 
yeah, I'm, I I I like take a slightly different view. I do think that that for all of them, there is a sense that there needs to be some form of resolution for the Palestinian people, and I don't think it's about simply removing the Palestinians from the equation because I mean that wouldn't be possible anyway. But I I think there is more to it. I do think there's some some form of resolution that they all want. Um, achieving it is a completely different thing, and I think they all feel a degree of powerlessness. Now, whether that powerlessness is has to be the case, whether they could uh, have a bit more agency, uh, possibly. But I do think they all recognise the need for a Palestinian state or some other form of resolution. But I, I mean, I don't see another form of resolution uh, in order to get stability in the region. Yeah, well, of course, so much of it depends on uh, the Americans. And as long as they continue their unqualified support for the Netanyahu regime, then uh, there is no no solution. There is no stability. But pressures are growing, as you say. It it, it does certainly raise the issue about stability. And I, I thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and also for writing this book, which, as I say, is very loose, is very well, and clearly sets out what can be a fiendishly complex uh, situation. You, you've explained it very well. It's called Seeking Stability Amidst Disorder. And, um, well, you can get it in all good bookshops, I hope, uh, Tobias. I hope so, too. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tobias Borg, a senior research fellow at London's Royal United Services Institute, otherwise known as RUSI. Hearst has just published his highly readable first book, Seeking Stability Amidst Disorder, The Foreign Policies of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar, 2010-2020. to You'll have noticed we bring you the podcasts with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. If you'd like to support our independent voice, head to our website at arabdigest.org where you can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Tobias. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.